it's my great privilege again. Um, and with great pleasure, I come to you this morning. Um, of course, this is not the first time I've spoken to you guys, but every time it's a great privilege. But this morning, I have an opportunity to begin and study with you in a way that I've never done before. You could say that uh, up to this point, I've been a hitman preacher. I've been hitting on various topics and various subjects and various issues, and I've hit di different um, passages, um, like 1 Corinthians 13, um, other passages uh, about loving one another, um, topics on baptism. Um, up to this point uh, in Cornerstone, I've yet to actually start and finish a book, sort of envious of James. He's already gone through Matthew and 1 Timothy. Um, he's Gone through, he's going through uh, the Gospel of John now, and I figure it's about time for me to settle in a book and to preach expositionally through uh, a book of the Bible together with you all. And so I consider it a great privilege to do that and to start with you um, in an epistle of the New Testament. Um, this opportunity is, is good in a couple of ways. Um, first of all, I have a the benefit of studying through an entire epistle and understanding the full orb message that was given uh, to a church uh, during that day by an apostle of God. And secondly, I get to preach it to you guys. You know, the study is good enough, but I get to preach it to you guys and, and reveal the scriptures as the Spirit uh, allows me to. And so I'm excited about that. I'm also excited that I don't have to labor to figure out what I'm going to preach on every Sunday, because now I get to go to the next verse and uh, preach on whatever topic the Lord sovereignly uh, gives us for that Sunday. Well, that being said, in the next probably few years, I'll be in First Peter while up here on the pulpit. It's a short letter, you may say. It's only five chapters, Rex, but I don't get to preach as much as a James does, and I don't think that um, I'll be able to simply um, pass over some of these truths without having a series or three-part sermon as I've already read through it and, and meditated on it. So I don't know how long the journey will be, but it will be a sweet journey, and I covet your prayers as we look to the Word of God um, from First Peter. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we just uh, give you glory for your word. Lord, we thank you for not being silent and for allowing us to um, live in our sin without understanding how we can obey you and serve you and even um, have salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. We understand, Lord, that this book is not simply literature, but it is inspired, it is breathed by you through men. Just pray, Lord, that you would help us to cherish and hold on to these glorious truths because they give us all we need for life and godliness. It's with great excitement, Lord, that I look to your scripture um, this morning, look to the message that you gave through your apostle Peter, through various churches in Asia Minor, and how that it is not simply applicable for that time years and years ago, but through your providence, you allowed your scripture to transcend time and history to be applicable to Cornerstone Bible Church and each individual in this church, God. Pray that you would help us to be attentive to the way you're molding our soul as we approach uh, each time your word. Help us to be sensitive to the things that you're leading us and directing us and causing us to change. And we ask, Lord, that we would direct our attention upon Christ Jesus, our Lord, as we look to him and make him preeminent in our lives and in our church. God, I ask for your spirit now as um, I, I do an overview of this book. Pray that you would lead me, that you would humbly allow me to 
clearly speak your word of truth and that you allow each person here to understand and know these um, great truths found in this epistle. Bless our time together and allow it to be fruitful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you may be asking, uh, why First Peter? Um, my answer to that is, why not? It's, it's God's Word, and it, the entire New Testament and Old is God's Word, so I could probably pick any uh, book of the Bible, and it would be as blessing. But First Peter, I, I, I wanted to study it for a couple of reasons. First of all, I've never studied it before. And second of all, it's because this book is unique in the sense where it's, most of the letters in the New Testament, as you know, are from Paul. And we get a lot of Pauline kind of uh, theology. Uh, it's interesting to me to, to kind of see another perspective from an equal apostle in Christ, Peter. And we have two short letters um, to work with in the New Testament, and I thought it would be great for us to look, and great for me to look at this uh, epistle. This book is one uh, that has uh, deep truths for practical living. One commentator said, First Peter is one of the most beautiful writings in the New Testament. William Barclay characterized this book as one of the easiest letters in the New Testament to read, for it never has lost its winsome appeal to the human heart. Commentator Edward Selwyn called it a microcosm of Christian faith and duty, the model of pastoral charge. Another commentator stamped this book, this short, impressive letter, as one of the most precious monuments of primitive Christianity, a jewel in the New Testament worthy to be inscribed with the great name of the Apostle. Why such great accolade for this small five-chapter epistle? Well, the answer could be found just by simply reading it and studying it. We'll find as we go through this that this is a book of hope. Yes, of course, many books of the Bible give us uh, uh, hope, this uh, theme of hope, but really one author calls this the epistle of living hope, and I think that's a good title for this uh, letter. It's a letter of triumphant faith amid trial and persecution. It gives hope of Jesus Christ for the believer amidst suffering at the hand of an unbelieving and antagonistic world. Someone else has said that First Peter breathes a spirit of undaunted courage and exhibits as noble a piety that can be found um, in any writing uh, outside of the Gospels. So, no wonder throughout the ages, uh, this small, concise letter has been treasured by the church, especially the persecuted church. So today we're going to start by kind of giving a broad kind of look at this book. Some of the background issues, I like to call it, we're setting the table. Before we eat, before we get down to the meal, we're going to set the table. Look at the background, the content uh, that surrounds this whole letter, the context, and then next week we'll dive right in to the first two verses of 1 Peter. I saw a movie with my dad a couple, no, about a month ago. Uh, some of you may have seen it. Uh, Star Wars Episode Two. I was very excited to see it, Attack of the Clones. And I watched it with great intrigue and with great um, enthusiasm. And I went, I, um, the, the theater was crowded. I just wanted my dad to see it. And we watched it and I asked my dad afterwards. I was excited. I was like, wow, it's a good movie. I asked him how, What'd you think of it? He said, well, it was okay. And I said, no, this was a good movie. Don't you think it was a good movie? And he's like, yeah, but I didn't really understand it because uh, 
and then I explained to him some of the, the things that you know from episode one, from the later Star Wars uh, trilogy, and how it, it, it all comes to, to pass, and how we see a younger Yoda, and younger Obi-Wan Kenobi, and this is uh, Luke Skywalker's dad. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and, and, he, and it started making more sense to him at, at the end. Well, that's kind of what we're going to do right now. We're going to kind of fill in a little of the, the gaps, give a little context, so that we can understand the, the, the details of First Peter. We're going to look at, like we always say, the, the forest before we look at the trees. So we're setting up, um, we're setting the table for First Peter, and hopefully it'll give you a greater understanding of this book so you can greatly, greater uh, apply it to your life as well. Well, let's first look at the authorship of this epistle. You may think it's obvious, the title says who it is. Um, but in recent years, this traditional answer of uh, Petrine or authorship by the Apostle Peter has been put into question. So we're just going to briefly look at um, some evidence for who exactly the author um, is and then we'll go on um, after that to some other things like the re readers and the recipients. And we're going to look at a brief uh, sketch of Peter and then the place, date, and purpose of First Peter. Well, externally, external evidence, of course, is evidence apart from the actual text of the scripture. Eternally, externally, uh, this book has been traditionally unanimously attested by the early church to be the writing of the Apostle Peter, one of the twelve. And there is no early um, evidence that any church father had any doubt that this was an epistle of the Apostle Peter. In fact, this letter is the most well-attested canonical apostolic writing um, externally than any writing in the New Testament. Eusebius, Papias, Polycarp, Irenaeus, Tertullian, all major early church fathers call this letter um, a letter written by the Apostle Peter. Um, and critics today won't oppose this view at all. Internally, though, let's move on here, evidence is limited, but it's very clear. Um, 1 Peter 1.1 1, 1 gives us uh, a good idea of who this apostle, uh, epistle is written by. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5.1 also says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. This author was also um, considered himself to be an elder as well as a witness, a first-hand witness of the sufferings of Christ. These two verses um, kind of point and direct us to the Apostle Peter. One commentator says, this impression of eyewitness in 1 Peter 5.1 runs throughout the whole epistle and gives this epistle a distinct character and a distinct authority. 1 Peter 5.13, also, this author refers to Mark. And he says, Mark, my son. Now, this is not a literal um, son he's talking about here, but this was a term of endearment used um, back then. And it's consistent with a tradition that we'll later talk about that has John Mark, the author of one of the Gospels, connected with the Apostle Peter. So most likely this, my son Mark, Peter is talking about, is in fact the same John Mark we know of in the New Testament. But that being said, there have been critical attacks upon uh, the internal evidence that Peter was the author of this letter. The major criticism, I'm not going to go through all of them, I'm just going to go through one. The major criticism is that the Greek is too good. It's too good. It's too fancy. It's too um, formal. It's too highly uh, educated for Peter, who was an unlearned Galilean fisherman. He was a Jew. 
How could he speak in such a formal and precise way? Well, this argument is from silence. We know that from the time he was a fisherman up to this point, it's been 30 years. Um, you can learn a few things in 30 years. You could uh, establish maybe your language in 30 years. Couldn't uh, Peter have progressed in his speaking of Greek? That's one open possibility. Another answer is found in the verse that we read this morning in 512. Um, it says there, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written you briefly. Through Silvanus. Who's Silvanus? Silvanus, you may recall him by his other name in scripture, Silas. Silas, a colleague of the Apostle Paul. And here, the author says that he has written through Silvanus. In other words, Silas was his secretary is this transcriber, if you will. Our knowledge of Silvanus indicates that he was a man uh, who would have been able to have um, such stylistic Greek that we see in this epistle. He was a Jew, an esteemed member of the Jerusalem church and a Roman citizen. He was one of the two men chosen for the delicate task of conveying and explaining the decree of the Jerusalem council to the Gentile Christians in Acts 15. Um, tradition has had it that he was uh, associated, as well as scriptural, with uh, the Gentile missions. And so the major language of the Gentile people is what? Greek. And so Silas could have helped Peter in exacting his words in the Greek language. So really... There are other arguments besides that his Greek was too good, um, etc. But really all of these claims against um, Petrine authorship have been answered clearly by scholars. And really um, we can rest assured, and we will assume in our course through 1 Peter, that this book was in fact written by the apostle we know so well the Gospels. So with that in mind, uh, and you probably knew I was going to land there because we're going to look at Apostle Peter, Peter. Let's look at a brief sketch of the Apostle Peter. I don't know, but maybe you've been asked this question at maybe youth retreats or surveys. Who is your favorite Bible character, right? Maybe on interviews or something like that. Um, I remember the first time I was asked that question as a young Christian, didn't know much of the Bible, had, was reading through it, um, but I noted uh, uh, this man, Peter, and I remember when someone asked me that on a survey at one of the retreats I went to, I said, I wrote down, Peter, um, and someone asked me why, um, because Peter was a guy who I could relate to just in the sense where uh, he failed many times. Sometimes he was okay and he was good. Um, but I really enjoyed the fact that the Lord used him despite his inadequacies. And he used him in a great way. Well, let's look at uh, Peter right now. And I want to just highlight a few things that the Lord had sovereignly brought him through and privileged him with um, as we see through the scripture. Peter was the most prominent of the 12 apostles. The New Testament gives a more complete picture of Peter than other, any other disciple with the exception of Paul. Peter is often considered to be a big, blundering fisherman. But really, this is a shallow portrayal of him. If you just stop there, you've missed the majority of the New Testament. A more fitting appraisal of Peter was that he was a pioneer among the twelve apostles and in the early church. And he broke ground in the church that established the church that we know now as Christianity. First of all, we can see that he was the first apostle to be called. You see point number one there is he was the first apostle 
to be called. Peter's given name was Simon, or better, Simeon. His father was Jonah, and his brother was Andrew, and he was also a disciple of Christ. His family probably lived in Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it's also possible they lived in Bethsaida. Peter, as far as we can know by the brief uh, text in um, Matthew 8, um, in 1 Corinthians 9.5, he was a married man because the Gospels mention that Jesus healed his mother-in-law. So most likely he was married. They again were fishermen, Peter and Andrew, in the Sea of Galilee and perhaps were in partnership with the sons of Zebedee. You know them well, the sons of Thunder, uh, James and John. So he was the first apostle to be called. He was also known to be first among the apostles. First among the apostles. First, um, Peter was really the first disciple to be called. He was first to be named an apostle in Mark 3. His name heads every list of the 12 in the New Testament, and apparently he was the strongest individual in the band. He frequently spoke as the the kind of the speaker of the disciples and was the recognized leader. He was dominant in his personality, as you, as you well know. He had a readiness, what, to walk on water. And he even had the wherewithal to ask the awkward question, how often should I forgive my sinning brother? So he was first in, among the apostles, not meaning he was better than them, but he was a leader and a spokesman for them as well. Third, he was in the inner circle. He was in the inner circle. Among the twelve, there were three that were a part of a small group, a trio, that Jesus really confided in. These three were Peter, James, and John. They were there when um, Jesus raised a young girl from the dead in Mark chapter 5. They were there when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain in Matthew 17. They were present when Jesus was praying blood in agony in Gethsemane, Matthew 26. And during Jesus' final week in Jerusalem, two of the three, Peter and John, were sent to make preparations for their last meal together, the Lord's Supper, Luke 22. Next, he was also first of the apostles to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Significant. He was the first apostle to recognize Jesus as Messiah or Christ. The purpose of Jesus' existence in the flesh was that people would come to a true picture of who God is and what he has done for man's salvation. The first apostle to recognize this fact was Peter. He confessed Jesus as Lord in the region of Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16. He confessed Jesus to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And according to Matthew, it was because of this confession that Jesus renamed Simon, Cephas in Aramaic, or Peter in the Greek, or Petros, which means rock. So he's known by his given name, Simon, but Jesus named him Cephas in Aramaic, Peter in Greek, both of these two terms meaning rock. Next, we also see that Peter was the first apostle to witness the resurrection. How ironic it was that the one who denied Jesus the most obvious, in the most obvious way during his hour of suffering, should be the first person to witness his resurrection from the dead. Yet according to Luke 24 and Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, Peter was the first apostle to see the risen Lord. We can only marvel at the grace of God that he would grant such a blessing on one who really didn't deserve it because he had just denied Christ. But here we also confirm God's appointment of Peter as being 
a leader of the emerging New Testament church. So he was the first apostle to witness the resurrection. He was also the first apostle to proclaim salvation to the Gentiles. First apostle to proclaim salvation to the Gentiles. The earliest information about the early church comes from the book of Acts. Um, and this clearly has Peter at the forefront in the first chapters. The first 11 chapters of Acts are built and centered around the Apostle Peter, his activity toward reaching, to the, gen reaching the Gentiles. After chapter 11, we see that Peter kind of drops out in Acts, and Paul, the official um, missionary, to the Gentiles took over. But we do know um, probably that Peter did not drop out of active service, but he continued to minister um, to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Finally, here in this section, Peter was the first to inspire the writing of a gospel. First to inspire or writing of the gospel. Now this is not exactly seen in scripture, but Christian tradition would have it that um, Peter went to Rome and he stayed there for a long period of his life to eventually die there. Little is known of Peter's activities in Rome, although Papias, writing about AD 125, stated that Peter's preaching inspired the writing of the first gospel, which was drafted by John Mark. Mark, who was, who was traditionally... Peter's interpreter in Rome, right? He's the interpreter of Peter in Rome. Tradition states also that Peter was crucified in Rome during the persecutions of Nero, which we'll talk about later. Sometimes, sometime late in AD 67 or early AD 68, he was approximately 78 years old when he died. Um, though there is little evidence to support this truth, tradition has it that he was crucified upside down because he did not want to on, dishonor Christ's work on the cross. And this may be true, um, but there's little evidence of this, but this may have been, in fact, the case. Now, what I've just done is just given you a brief synopsis of the life and the accomplishments of Peter, the way that he... Um, was brought sovereignly to various um, graces in his life. This is the author of this letter. This is the author of this wonderful epistle. An apostle, a shepherd, a leader of the church, a man of God who had his ups and downs, but eventually was used in a great way to serve the Lord. Now that we've looked at Peter, Let's look at who he was writing to. The recipients or the readers of this first letter of Peter. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1. It says there, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the foolish me measure. In these opening statements, we know clearly that the people that Peter was writing to were Christians. They are called chosen according to the foreknowledge of God in verses 1 and 2. And these Christians were in a certain geographical area, an area that we know as Asia Minor. These Five places that are mentioned here were five provinces of um, the Roman Empire, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Um, these, if you can want to picture it today, are the northern part of modern-day Turkey. These were the people Peter was writing to. But as far as nationality or racial group of these um, men and women he was writing to. Um, there have been three proposed 
views of national identity. Three proposed views. These views are, one, they were Jewish Christians. Two, they were Gentile Christians. Or three, they were both Jew and Gentile Christians. And each of these has been espoused by different uh, commentators. First of all, let's look at the first point. Jewish Christians. The reason why people think that the, the recipients of this letter were Jewish Christians by nationality were because there were Jewish overtones um, throughout this epistle. Namely, he talks about the diaspora or the dispersion. Um, NAS translated scattered um, or alien scattered. The diaspora, which is a, a Jewish kind of... Um, phrase that was used in connection with the Old Testament Jews. And also, secondly, you'll see as we go through that there are many Old Testament um, reflections throughout this uh, epistle. So many thought that this was evidence, or many still think that this is evidence that there are Jewish Christians he is writing to. But I don't necessarily think the Jewish Christians were the majority. So let's look at the second point, Christians who are Gentiles. I think through the context, moreover, it indicates that the audience had a pagan or Gentile background. 1 Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, listen to this, from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. Um, this seems to indicate that there's not an Old Testament background, but there was a feudal way of life that they were living that was passed down. First Peter 2.10, it says, this is pretty obvious here, 2.10, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This does not seem to be the chosen people of Israel that is mentioned in the Old Testament, because they, in fact, were a chosen people. Seems to me that Peter was writing to a Gentile audience. First Peter 4, 3 and 4. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, and listen to this, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. All the, all in, in, in all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. Here again indicates that these believers were involved in a Gentile pagan way of living um, that is not necessarily... Uh, having Jewish overtones. Having said that, I think that we cannot rule out the Jewish uh, aspect of the Christians who are receiving this, this letter. So I would say the recipients were both. This is a conclusion that is very similar to many of the churches that Paul wrote to. There was a nucleus of Jewish believers, but the majority of the members were probably non-Jewish, they were Gentiles. And so it's both with the, with the Gentile or pagan background of most. Okay, so that is the audience that um, Peter is writing to. Now let's get into the place and the date. The place or origin of writing. First Peter was written according to First Peter 5 13 from Babylon from Babylon now there are three interpretations of this uh, city Babylon number one it could be a city of that name in Egypt number two if you know your history um, ancient history it would be Mesopotamia Babylon remember that or, three, it's a cryptic designation for Rome. A cryptic designation, designation for Rome. 
Well, let me just quickly go through these uh, evidences. Number one, that it was a name of, the, of a city in Egypt that was during that time. This is pretty much easily dismissed because this city was of minuscule size and the Alexandria the Alexandrian church, which was the major church in that area, records no shred of evidence that 1 Peter was ever written to it. And further, it is really doubtful that Christianity ever took root in Egypt before the first century. So you can cross out that first one. Number two is also somewhat doubtful. The reason being is because Peter is nowhere else associated with this region of Mesopotamian Babylon. The area there was also very sparsely populated. And early tradition centered Peter in the west and not the east. So today there are very few adherents to this one. There's less of the first one. There's a little bit more in the second. But the majority of people agree, commentators, New Testament scholars, that number three is probably the best um, understanding of where Peter was writing, Rome. Now, why would they say this when it's obviously Babylon? Well, this is consistent, first of all, with Peter's figurative tone in the entire concluding sentences in this uh, verse 513. Remember I said earlier that he talked about John Mark as his figurative son? I remember when I was at Talbot, one of the professors came up during the chapel and he said, uh, this is Mick Boryersma, my son. I thought like, I didn't know that one of the professors had a son who was at this seminary. And I, for the longest time, I thought he was literal in, in a sense there. But he was using the, the figurative language that is sometimes used in the, in the Bible, meaning that this is my, um, someone I, I love, like, like my son. Um, so it really wasn't, they weren't related with blood. So here, again, we see that the last portion of First Peter, there is a figurative um, sense, a figurative, figurative tone. Also, Babylon, in Jewish literature during the time of the New Testament era, was a cryptogram used for Rome. It was a cryptogram used for security measures. It was for um, protection, just in case uh, this Roman uh, church would be exposed by any letter that they sent out. We all know that during that time, this was uh, the Roman Empire. And there was a, a coming storm, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, of persecution kind of uh, building in the church. And so Peter here is probably writing in a cryptic way to protect the church at Rome. So probably the best understanding of Babylon here is that it is symbolic of Rome. So we'll take that as being the place of writing. As far as date is concerned, most date 1 Peter from 62 to 67 AD. Remember, 67 is when Peter is said to have died. So it can't be after that. Okay? Um, most probable that 1 Peter was written shortly before the outbreak of the Neronian persecution, the persecution under Nero. The date of this persecution um, was 64 AD. And most likely, this was either the summer before or the early fall of the same year before this persecution actually took place. Let me read you a, a, a portion of the history of that um, Neronian persecution in 64 AD. A generation after the death of Christ, Christianity had reached Rome in the form of a, an obscure offshoot of Judaism, popular among the city's poor and destitute. Members of this religious sect spoke of the coming of a new kingdom and a new king. These views provoked suspicion among the Jewish authorities who rejected the group, 
and fear among the Roman authorities who perceived these sentiments as a threat to the empire. In the summer of 64, Rome suffered a terrible fire that burned for six days and seven nights, consuming almost three quarters of the city. During this fire, it was Emperor Nero who wanted to, uh, it was said that he had plans to destroy a good portion of the city so that he can resurrect um, ornate monuments, marble, and make it into a city that would be more beautiful. So the people accused the Emperor Nero, Nero for the devastation, claiming that he set the fire for his own amusement. Um, legend has it that he was playing a lyre or, or, or fiddle during uh, the time that the city was burning. Um, the emperor, uh, hearing that people were accusing him and trying to placate the people, he decided to blame the fire on this group, this new group that was emerging, that was causing a lot of problems, the Christians. The emperor ordered the arrest of a few members of the sect who under torture accused others until the entire Christian populace was implicated and became fair game for retribution. As many of the religious sect that could be found were rounded up and put to death in the most horrific manner for the amusement of the citizens of Rome. The ghastly way in which the victims were put to death aroused sympathy among many Romans, although most felt their execution was justified. This was historically one of the most devastating times for the Christian community in Rome. They were persecuted, martyred, executed, killed for their faith. But I think that First Peter, some would say that it was during this time that First Peter was wrote, written. But I would say that First Peter was written before, and almost months before, this actual persecution, this martyrdom, this severity came out. Notice First Peter 5.9, it says, But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Here it seems to indicate that Peter is saying that the suffering that they're going through is the same for every Christian um, around the world. So it doesn't seem to indicate that there was this harsh um, martyrdom, killing of, of Christians back and forth that was occurring during this time. In fact, um, there is no indication throughout the letter that there is any martyrdom taking place. Also, Peter's advocacy for the loyal and conciliatory attitude toward the government in chapter 2 suggests a time before official action had taken, uh, was taken against Christians. The trend of events made it clear, though, that there was an ominous uh, cloud that was laying, laid before the church. Look at 1 Peter 4, 17. Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will become of, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of, God, of the godless man and the sinner? Peter says, It is time for the judgment of the household of God to begin. There is a sense in this epistle, as we'll go through, of a gathering or a coming storm. Previously, the leaders uh, of the government had prone to regard Christianity as simply a sect of, of Judaism. And so they thought, you know, if they have any problems, they have to deal it within their Jewish community. But more and more, the Jewish community was ostracizing this Christian sect and now they were separated from one another. Peter indicated that there were railings against Christians in 3.9. There were 
people were reviling them in 316 and speaking evil of them in 4-4. It was like a rising wave of hate-inspired mob actions and even local official actions that was coming. You could see it in the horizon, this, this wave that was about to hit the Christians in Asia Minor. And that is kind of the sense, the urgency we see behind the writing of this epistle. We see now, as we look back, God's providence of penning an, an epistle by this apostle Peter and inspiring this letter to prepare young Christians for the impending persecution and the fierce sufferings that they would have to endure in this awful Neronian persecution. So it's best to date um, this epistle in early or mid-64 before this uh, persecution was full throttle. We know, in fact, this persecution was so bad that it was said that Peter himself died within this persecution. So with that in mind, Let's look at, finally, the purpose of the letter. With those factors in mind, we can have a clearer understanding of the purpose of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 5.12 gives us the clear purpose. Through Silvanus, Peter writes, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written you briefly, and here's the purpose right here, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter was a pastor, articulating his concern for these Christians. He was exhorting, encouraging them as a, a shepherd of the flock to remain in the grace of God amidst persecution and suffering. So the primary purpose is to encourage believers to face persecution and suffering by the grace of God or in the grace of God. Peter encourages them, as we will see, to lift their eyes above the present circumstance, lift their eyes above the present difficulties, and look to God's grace. He reveals to them their secure hope in Christ Jesus and points them to, to the salvation as well as Christ's example to follow in his steps. Peter accomplishes uh, this purpose of encouragement um, in the midst of suffering by pointing to what God has done for them in Christ Jesus and then he begins to uh, apply it to the reader's life. If you want to really look at three themes as we go through this epistle, you'll note, um, as one commentator say, these three themes are probably most um, summarized as faith or trust in God, obedience, and patience. And obedience and patience have their foundation in the faith. Trust in God. And so that is kind of the way Peter writes his epistle. He starts with the living hope of Christ. This is epistle of, of living hope. Every Christian, we know, is called to, to suffer, to be persecuted for Christ's sake. And therefore, you may say, what does this have to do with me? I'm not facing a Neronian persecution, Rex. I'm not even, I don't even feel like I'm suffering much. Um, well, you can expect to suffer. And if you're not suffering now, you can well be assured that it may be just around the corner. So this epistle is, is good for us now Maybe you are having difficulty in your circumstances and also in preparation for the future because all in Christ will suffer. It's not an option. It's not, there's no but 
or exceptions, but all will suffer. And, I, and you're going to find that this is going to give you great hope and great comfort as coming from one of the shepherds of the flock. Well, in conclusion, let me just read uh, a portion of a, of a book where one author summarizes everything that I've just told you, and he does it in storybook fashion. And I quote, just listen. The date was AD 63 or early 64. A man in his late 60s or 70s was talking slowly enough for his friend to write down his words. Together, they were composing a letter to believers in Christ who had become targets of religious persecution. The man dictating the letter was Peter, the passionate, impulsive, unpredictable disciple of Christ described in the New Testament Gospels. Dark clouds of persecution had broken on believers scattered throughout Asia Minor and in the area north of the Taurus Mountains. Peter longed to encourage them and decided to do so by writing a letter that they could circulate among them. Silas, a dedicated, well-educated, and gifted man who had proven his trustworthiness as Paul's companion and co-writer, gave Peter secretarial and editorial help. Peter had earned the right to encourage his readers. He knew what it was like to be overcome by fear and discouragement. Years earlier, he had temporarily abandoned Christ when times got too difficult. He too had been afraid. He too had been unprepared for the hostility he experienced as a follower of Christ. Along the way, however, he learned that God is never more real or more reassuring than in those moments when he is all we have. So P Peter dictated, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in foolish measure. Peter had a high view of these displaced refugees. Even though they were strangers in the world, they were known to God, and God had a plan for them. They were to show the world that real life doesn't consist in the abundance of, a, of material possessions. In fact, it doesn't even begin until we possess something worth dying for. Peter's regard for these people came through the first words of his letter. He longed for them to recognize in the middle of their trouble those defining moments that would prove to them that they were among the most privileged people in the world. He desired that they be so overwhelmed by the love of God that they would consider it an honor to suffer for the one who had done so much for them." End quote. So with those words, it's such a joy for me to begin with you this journey through First Peter with you all. Uh, I pray that you and I may be overwhelmed with the love of God that we would consider it an honor to go through various trials because it is an honor to suffer the one for the one who gave himself for us. And hopefully as we look through this, we too will be able to face every trial, persecution, and situation in the grace of God. Let us pray.